Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Let me say two things really quickly here. One of them is uh, when I was a newspaper reporter, I was told about this kind of rule of thumb. I think it came from an editor in North Carolina who said, you know, if somebody gets in touch with you and says he can run a three-minute mile and you should meet him at the track so you can watch him do it, you should understand if you're a busy person, if you're like a lot of newspaper reporters juggling a lot of work, you probably shouldn't do this because it's not going to happen. And it's actually a pretty good rule of thumb. I mean, things that seem really, really implausible. You know, if you're busy, then maybe you don't investigate that one. You investigate the one that seems a little bit more plausible. Now, the trick to all that is that this is a moving scale, right? Particularly when it comes to formerly UFOs, now UAPs. I think, you know, this will be the fifth show that we've done, fifth episode we've done since 2017, uh, about UFOs, now UAPs. And in that time, they've gone, their status has gone from, you know, a, a claim of a three-minute mile to a much more plausible claim. And and I think for everybody, uh, wherever you were on a 180-degree line, you probably moved 20 degrees a little bit more towards so, some kind of believability. In other words, if you were completely a non-believer, now you're an agnostic. If you were an agnostic, now you're saying, you know, there seems like there's something there. If you were, it just seems like there's something there. Now you're, oh, there's definitely something there, and so on. So we're going to keep doing this because it's obviously an evolving story. One of the people who's helped it evolve is our first guest here. It's her third time on our show. Leslie Kane is an investigative journalist and the author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go On the Record. So Leslie Kane, welcome back to our show. Hi, Colin. It's great to be back here with you. Thanks for having me. So let's start three days ago, and then we can kind of work backwards. There's something called the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. It comes up, I think, every year. Uh, And increasingly, one of the things that happens, that Congress does in a pretty open process, and these days with press releases issued proclaiming that they're doing it, is they put things in the National Defense Authorization Act that are either... Well, you should describe it. But the latest thing that they're doing, as I understand, is is modeled on the JFK assassination archives. They're basically saying if there's stuff the government has about UAPs, it should be presumed public unless unless there's some basis for classifying it. You know, the default setting should should be public. But this has been becoming a a yearly ritual, right, where the NDAA is – uh, altered, modified, amended, or just, you know, just something about UAPs are included, right? Absolutely right. And it started a few years ago. And you're right, like every year, something gets added to it that's even more extraordinary and demands more on the UAP topic than we've seen before. 
And as you mentioned, the, the one just a few days ago, which has to be has to go through the system, but it looks likely it will pass it as bipartisan support is to get access to many documents that are filed away on UAP that should be made public, as you said. The only and of course, they if they're an issue for national security, then they're allowed to withhold them. And that's the only problem, because a strong argument can be made for a national security problem, depending on who's in charge. So I think some people are kind of dubious whether we're going to get very much. But nonetheless, it's a great effort to make. And you're right. The public should have access to this information if it's not a national security problem. So let's hope it happens. We should clear, clarify our terminologies. UFOs kind of had a stigma attached to them. UAPs was the new term. But the A has actually uh, changed in UAPs, right, from aerial to anomalous? Yeah, it's now anomalous, which is even a broader term than aerial, which was the original one, which was broader than UFO, because UFO referred to a, an object. So anomalous phenomena confer, refers to something much broader than that, and it also includes things in the water, which, uh, you know, it, we've had a lot more data lately, a lot more conversation about objects that are seen going in and out of the water. So they've got to expand that terminology to include that. Now, back to the NDAA. Uh, in the previous cycle, I believe, there was a modification that created a whistleblower provision. Uh, and oddly enough, the, one of the people who played some kind of role in drafting the language, at least of that, of the NDAA as regards UAPs, is really the first very, very prominent whistleblower here. So maybe first of all, just talk about the, the whistleblower change itself. What was put in to the NDAA? Well, it, very, very important. The whistleblower protections that were put in were inviting uh, people in the government or in the intelligence community who have information about UAP that they were not supposed to talk about because it was protected. That you know they had signed security oaths, basically classified information that was very closely held, and a lot of it in special access programs, very secret programs. So this whistleblower protection that the Congress put forward was inviting them to come speak to Congress about these programs, about the information that they had, and they were going to be released from their security oaths in doing that. So that's basically what the the act initiated, and a number of whistleblowers have indeed come forward and spoken to Congress, one of whom, as you mentioned, helped with that language and has gone public. Uh, and I, um, my co-author, Ralph Blumenthal, and I broke that story about five weeks ago of that particular whistleblower but we know that others have also spoken to Congress. They just haven't come pub gone public yet. Yeah, we should just pause and say, um, you've been working on these stories for more than two decades, I believe. And, and these two things that we just described, the idea that whistleblowers, that, that a mechanism could be created by Congress for whistleblowers to be able to get their stories into some kind of official record. And then the thing being contemplated in this iteration, the idea that there would be a default setting, a presumption that uh, that UAP stories would be uh, public. This is something 20 years ago or 15 years ago or really 10 years ago. This is the stuff of your dreams in a way, right? A lot of your career spent, has been spent crowbarring stuff out that they're talking about offering to you now on a crudite platter. It's absolutely true, Carl. I mean, my first story I published on this was in the Boston Globe in the year 2000. And so between 2000 and 2017, I mean, it was so different. It was a different world. Basically, the message I was putting out was that these objects are real. I mean, it was that simple. 
people didn't accept that then in the official world anyway. UFOs are real. They're worthy of investigation. They need to be taken seriously and they can be a hazard. They can even be a national security problem. Well, post 2017, all of the things that I was working on prior to that have come to, to light or have, have been realized really. And the official world has acknowledged all of these things and more. They've moved forward even beyond what I ever would have imagined. So you're absolutely right. There's like a line in the sand that was drawn with that New York Times story that I helped write in 2017. And everything is different now, including the taboo or the stigma, which was really powerful prior to 2017. And that has diminished a great deal as well. So, yes. Yeah, so I'm going to assume that people have a little bit of familiarity with what has gone on so far and maybe understand what you're referencing in terms of the page one of the New York Times and the idea that there has been testimony and even video footage from Navy pilots and other people uh, of these things that, that don't move in any kind of conventional way uh, that we now know that there uh, was at minimum, as it turns out, one office funded to the tune of $22 million, which is not a lot of money in terms of federal funding, but it's sort of something to be looking into this and, and somebody, a guy named Luis Elizondo, who was heading it up and who has since left. But I just, you know, I don't know. I'm just trying to catch people up here because, yes, uh, what, what's happened uh, here this summer, in, starting in June, as you said, about five weeks ago, uh, is that a whistleblower named David Charles Grush has come forward. Now, this is somebody who has very impressive intelligence credentials. He's played a key role in two major, although maybe not well-known to the common person agencies. So just give us a sense of what kind of bona fides or, or, or credibility Grush would bring to a conversation like this one. Absolutely. And these are the highest level of credibility. I mean, he, he worked for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which was where he was until April of 2023. Prior to that, he was with the National Reconnaissance Office. He's been an intelligence officer for 14 years at the highest level, high clearances, did a lot of work, was, was involved with a lot of special access programs and secret programs way beyond UAP. But for these, for both those agencies, he was their representative to the UAP task force, which was the Department of Defense body that was mandated to look into this topic. And so he brought these very high credential, very high level, you know, position that he had in the intelligence world into the UAP task force. And that's when he discovered the information that he brought forward as a whistleblower. Also to say he's represented by one of the absolutely highest, most well-respected attorneys in all of Washington. Doctor, uh, His name is Charles McCullough. He was the former inspector general of the intelligence community. And David Grush has also given a testimony under oath about everything that he has reported to Congress has also been brought to the inspector general and ruled they ruled, you know, that his complaint was urgent and uh, and credible, which is the term they use. So that after that, he went to Congress and he has spent hours and hours talking to congressional staffers and provided them with testimony. That's sort of the story. But what's so powerful about him is the fact that he does have such high credentials and he is very highly respected within the intelligence community. And nobody's been able to pick any holes in his character or his record or anything like that. He's, he's an extremely credible individual. Now, in broad strokes, what he's been saying, uh, first of all, he's been clear about the fact that he personally has not seen or laid hands uh, on these things, but that, uh, but, and this is being confirmed by multiple other sources within the government, uh, that there are, there is sort of 
wreckage or some kind of remains of multiple crafts that do not appear to be of conventional terrestrial origin, uh, that there are enough things about them that are different from anything that we would be familiar with, that they seem to be from somewhere else. Uh, and and that – now, I think this is not in your article but in subsequent interviews. He's also said that – he actually used the term dead pilots. Uh, but but let's just start with the, with the craft because there's been an awful lot about that. And I think as you pointed out, he, he's the person we know is testifying to Congress, talking to Congress. We also – or you also right. know that there are other people, other people from within the government who are also talking to Congress about these kinds of things. Exactly. And I think I think what you're saying is exactly right. But I, I have to take it even one step forward because I'm, I'm telling you what he said. He actually said that uh, these these craft that you reference have been definitively inter- determined to be of non-human origin. It's not just that they seem to be or that they have unusual qualities, but through scientific study and through various methods, which he cannot talk about because they're classified, although he alluded to them in our in our article. But nonetheless, that it is an actual definitive determination that they're non, of non-human origin. That's what's so stunning about it. And you're right, Colin, he has not first, you know, he doesn't have firsthand knowledge in that he hasn't seen the craft himself or touched the craft, but he learned through very high level associates within the intelligence community and from people who have had firsthand knowledge. Those are the people that he learned about, you know, learned about this from. And he pulled together all this information based on what these high-level people told him. Some of them, people he's known for a very long time, even before he got involved with this, trusted sources, many of them who came to him and also reported their concern about the illegality of these programs. The fact that these craft have been hidden away from congressional oversight, which is not, which is against the law. So that's another component of the whole thing. But it is absolutely stunning that he made these claims and what has to happen now is we there has to be more investigation to find out if he's if it's if he's correct or not right so you know we referenced this before that um we already knew through largely the reporting of you and Ralph Blumenthal uh that there already was something called the advanced aerospace threat identification program that's the 22 million dollar luis 22 million dollar luis elizondo uh led effort that i referenced before this stuff that we're talking about is in some other sphere of the government. And if I understand everything that you've reported and what I've tried to put together, we almost don't know where in the government or maybe even in kind of the, you know, the the military defense establishment that might include some private corporations with strong ties to the government. We don't really know in what black area this stuff would be. It's not as much out in the open even as the Elizondo program, right? Absolutely. But the thing to to point out is that Congress knows because Mm -hmm. that is the kind of information that David Grush and other whistleblowers have provided to members of Congress. They have provided the locations, the names of the programs, the names of individuals involved. But we, the public, don't know this because it's, it's very, it's, very, very sensitive information, and it remains classified. But people do have to remember that the members of Congress who are behind all of this have heard a lot more than we the people have heard, and that's what motivates them to push forward on this. Yeah, they're acting like people who who know some stuff that's maybe not part of the record. And we are talking about people as disparate 
as, I don't know, Chuck Schumer has got his name on this latest effort. Uh, people like Marco Rubio have been very, very vocal about this on the Republican side and all the way further to the right, people like Josh Hawley. Um, there, there is a way in which it, it, Congress clearly knows something. It may not be exactly the story that David Grush is telling or the way it's come back to us, but Congress does seem to know something that makes them a lot more confident about pursuing this and a lot less worried about maybe being laughed at. I think you're absolutely right. And we know for a fact that, and this was confirmed by Marco Rubio recently publicly, that other whistleblowers have indeed talked to these members of Congress and they have provided you know, information that confirms what David Grush has reported and more because a lot of them are firsthand witnesses to this. So you're absolutely right. And I, I do love the fact that it is such a bipartisan issue, as you mentioned. I mean, there are people from both parties deeply involved with this. It really is an issue that transcends politics, one of the few. So that's a, that's a very wonderful thing about all of this. And I hope it stays that way. So let me just um, you know bring up some of the things that that give us pause a little bit, um, and, and I, you encounter these things all the time. I mean, it's Ben Franklin who said three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Uh, it's something like that, you know. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and there's that. There's this idea that well, I mean, uh, once again, not necessarily from your article, but in our article, uh, an interview I watched Grush do for for News Nation. You know, he talks about this mm-hmm. going back to the. 40s to Mussolini's, Mussolini's Italy, about maybe even the Vatican kind of brokering a back-channel transfer uh, of some kind of ex- extraterrestrial craft from Italy to the United States. I mean, it is a little hard to believe that these kinds of secrets could be so pervasively present, but also secret at, at the same time. People are big blabbermouths. I, I don't know. We, I know this comes up a lot in, in your work. What are you saying sure. about it these days? Yeah, I mean, I think that the government's better at keeping secrets than people think. But I also think it's important to note that really this has not been kept secret because over the decades, many people have come out and talked about these programs, the crash retrieved objects. I mean, I've been hearing about this ever since I began working on this. And I've also have sources from the inside who are not on the record who have told me things that people I really trust. But even in the public sphere, Colin, I mean, people have talked about these things. They just have never had enough information to prove it or, you know, or they haven't been listened to or they've been ridiculed or some of them have there's been misinformation that's been put out to counter what they're saying. So what we haven't had is an official statement, a unified government statement acknowledging any of this. But individuals have done so. I mean, I don't know if that helps. But it, it really, if you study the literature and the, all the books that have been written about this, you can see that it really hasn't been a secret in the sense that nobody's talked about it. I think that's very um, fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you, yeah. you can even look at it in popular culture. I mean, the subtext of the X-Files, uh, I mean, there's an entire series called Roswell <laughs> about, about exactly. teen- teenagers growing up in Roswell. But I mean, there's, so there's a way in which all of this, and, and if you're, you're a reporter with any kind of interest in in unusual topics, someone's going to talk to you about Project Blue Book. I mean, that's that idea of that's been around for literally decades. So yeah, I totally mm-hmm. get that. On the other hand, and so you did something that I would do if I really wanted to see 
how well my reporting about something w- would hold up to some tough questioning, which is you sat down with Ezra Klein for about an hour. And Ezra Klein of the New York Times is really, really smart. <laughs> and he asks, You're not kidding. He's really smart. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's really one of the smartest people in journalism. And he asks very tough questions. And he thinks hard about the mm-hmm. questions before he asks them. And one of the questions that he asked you, I hadn't really thought about, but I thought it was a really good question. And I got the feeling that you did too. And that is that in order for David Grush, this whistleblower who's talking about these you know, the, the, these remains of crafts that don't come from Earth and uh, that in order to do his talking, he had to get clearance from the Pentagon and that he got it. Um, and, and Klein's question is, and it's a good one, why, why would the Pentagon let him go and talk to Leslie Kane or anybody else about this stuff if, in fact, it's so sensitive? So talk a little bit about how you process that question. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, I mean, the, the, what the what the the review process is in the Department of Defense when they, you know, it's basically anybody that's going to publish anything in the intelligence world has to get it cleared by the DOD. And what the process is, is they're looking to see if anything the person is saying is classified or is a threat to national security. If it's not, they're allowed to say it. I mean, those are the only criteria they can use. They can't, they're not saying we support, we believe, or we agree with what this person is saying. We're just saying, they're just saying, I'm sorry, uh, this is not classified information. Therefore, we can't deny you the permission to say it. So, I mean, and since it wasn't classified information, I mean, I can't tell you what's going on in the minds of the person that actually reviewed the statements he wanted to make and did make through our article. And they reviewed them literally overnight and gave him permission. So I, I don't know what is going on in the minds of those people. I don't. All I know is that nothing he said was classified, so therefore he was clear to say it. Are there things that, I mean, you, you have been a very methodical journalist about this, um, yeah, and you are, you know, in, in a very, very large way responsible for the way that this has become more and more part of the domain of credibility. Um, and that probably makes you want to be careful that you don't get hung out, to, hung out to dry or say something that, you know, is so outlandish that it can't really, you know, can't join the other reporting that you've done in this world of believability. Now, I did watch uh, David Grush on News Nation. He did talk about dead pilots, uh, dead pilots of these, and there was some kind of organism that would have been piloting. Uh, and, and that's not in your report. Pardon me. Are there things that he's saying now that you're not 100 percent comfortable about? Are there ways in which you've, you're not ready to go all the way to some of the claims that he's making? Well, what, the way I would answer that is that when we did our story, we only used the, the uh, information that he had cleared with the Department of Defense, which was maybe about three pages of of things he had written in answers to some questions that I posed to him. And in that information, there was nothing about bodies, for instance, or dead pilots. So it wasn't even on my radar screen. You know, when we did the story, we just worked with the information that was cleared at the time. I never discussed that kind of question with him because you're right. I mean, as a journalist, I want to stay with information that is not going to cross a line and maybe set, you know, uh, just sort of make it too overwhelming for some of the uh, policymakers to deal with. On the other hand, I don't want to filter information either. So it's a tricky it's a tricky line to to to, to walk on. Um, I, I I'm not going to say that I'm I don't believe anything he has said since our story, but I just want to say that you know Ralph Blumenthal and I stand by what we reported on the in the original story, 
And we really wanted to focus on crash retrievals because that's what he was focusing on then. And we didn't have anything to do with the interview on News Nation. So I think that, you know, we just stand by what we did in that story as being what the, the crucial essence of, of what he has to say is about. It's really about the crash retrievals. Um, is there, oh, we're kind of running out of time here, but, and, and first of all, thank you for your time. It's always very, very interesting oh. to talk to you. Um, thank you. Is there a document that you're holding on to right now that comes from David Grush or somebody else? Do you actually, I mean, I realize the stuff that he's talking about, it comes from multiple different sources, things that he's been told by people who are at his level of clearance or something close to that, that there are people who have very high ranking positions within the U.S. government, within the military and intelligence complex who are all kind of talking among themselves about this and what they know. Are there actual documents that you have that we'll probably see someday? Well, I don't have any documents that have any classified information in them, Colin. As as intriguing as it sounds, I you know that's never never anything that I would ask for or want, and that's not anything that's been given to me ever. So, I mean, the really really important information is the classified information, which, as I said, has been given to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community and to the Congress. Um, I do have a document, however, I do have more information, let's say, uh, 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 documents about some of the uh, retaliation that was taken against Mr. Grush. Mm. Uh, and this is why he originally went to the inspector general, originally of the Department of Defense. And he does not want to reveal the details of that because he, it's under investigation right now. Um, again, that information isn't classified, but it's not something that uh, is, you know, he wants to make public right now. But other than that, uh, I don't have a lot more information. I've had a lot of conversations with him and I've had conversations with other sources as well. And some of them who we quoted in our article who support him and stand by what he's saying as being true. I mean, he's not the only one. That's what's so chilling about this. He's not the only one who's saying that we possess these non-human objects, non-human craft or, or parts thereof. Um, so I have spoken to others, some on the record and some off the record, who have actually confirmed what he's saying. So that, that it's not documents, it's more conversations. I mean, given all that, it's sort of hard to hold the other door open a little bit, but it might be worth just sort of saying this as we come to the end. We should mention, first of all, the Department of Defense has also established something called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which sort of ARROW is the right. acronym. Um, mm -hmm. and And... I mean, there's a lot in that title, all domain, all domain anomaly resolution office. But I mean, even the title implies, okay, there's stuff that we don't really have very good explanations for, uh, and, and they might be happening. Those things might be coming up in lots of different environments, as you say, under the ocean, or not in our atmosphere, but in outer space or that we can see into right now. There's a lot of things. But it does seem as though you know, one possible position on all of this is, and, and even Grush says, I'm not saying these come from outer space. They could come from a lot of different places. They could come from a, you know, uh, um, a sort of unilocated dimension that's, you know, up against ours or something. But, I mean, I guess it's sort of worth saying, until we know a thing, then the word anomalous is probably a pretty good word. I agree with you because we really do not know, uh, Colin. And, and, you know, Absolutely. I think anomalous is a good world because it, it encompasses lots of different possibilities. I don't think this is as simple as uh, uh, what used to be called the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which was basically that there's some visitors coming from another planet. I mean, 
there's, I think this phenomenon is something way more complicated than that. And I do think it's good to have a broad nomenclature, you know, to deal with it. But, you're, you know, the point is we need more investigation. I mean, we don't know yet what where we're going. We don't know the answer to these questions yet. We don't know. Uh, we have no verification, for instance, for what David Grush has said, at least publicly. I mean, we don't know what the Congress has, but so it's really he's opened a door for an investigation to take place that we very much hope will take place and that we hope that some of it will be made public to the extent that it can be and that others will come forward as well. And I think we just have to look to the future on this and really hope that the Congress will uh, do the proper investigation and that we'll find out what this is all about, what's going on, because we don't know. And I'm not claiming that I know either. I'm just uh, reporting on what I'm told. And, you know, I think this is a, an, an issue really worthy of investigation. And it's a fascinating mystery. And I think the public has a right to know some of the basics about it, even if they're not told the specific information that could be a national security problem. Right. I mean, if we have craft from somewhere else or of, un, of non-human origin, we can be told that fact without being told anything else that could jeopardize our national security. And I think that's what the general public is looking for. Well, Lizzie Keene, as you say, this is fascinating stuff. And this is, as I think I said, our fifth episode of this kind. Uh, we hope to talk to you again in the future. This is not going to stop. It's going to keep growing. Leslie Kane is an investigative journalist and author of UFOs. Generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. Thanks to you, Leslie. We'll take a quick break. We'll talk to, as we have in the past, one of the people who for a long time thought there was some, some meat on the bones of this story, shall we say. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so the Mutual um, UFO Network, better known as MUFON, has been around for more than 50 years. And these are civilian volunteers who 
investigate and observe what they can uh, about this phenomenon that we now call UAPs. Uh, and so he's been with us before uh, because, in fact, the whole status of the of these civilian volunteers, the people who have kind of nursed this idea along for decades and decades, has changed pretty radically over the last, say, six or seven years. Mike Panicello is joining us, the state director of MUFON in Connecticut, uh, and uh, he is with us now. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you? Good. So we talked to you before when some of Leslie's reporting uh, and some of the stuff done in the New York Times was obviously kind of changing the paradigm. There's there more stuff has come out since then. Um, maybe the first thing to say is, are you getting a different kind of person or, or just more people interested in what you do, maybe interested in joining MUFON, maybe wanting to show up for one of your events? We are definitely getting an uptick in membership, and we're getting more people coming to our monthly events because of that. Uh, so it's been a it's a real great time for for our field that we're getting recognized finally, and uh, people are starting to show an interest in it. And and just in terms of what MUFON does do, what what are your activities and duties like in the organization? So we do several things. Um, the first is to promote the field of ufology, to hold seminars, lectures, um, just to educate the public about what ufology is, what some of the evidence that's out there to support extraterrestrials exist and are visiting our planet. Um, so we do that. I do that through lectures around the state at various libraries or sometimes private organizations will host me. And I usually do them for free. We also investigate UFO sightings. So if a person in Connecticut has seen something in the sky, uh, they can uh, go to our website and fill out a sighting report. And then one of my field investigators will then go out and try and determine you know, what it was. Was it a man-made object, uh, misidentification, or was it truly something unknown? Um, what, what's the breakdown of that? I'm guessing, you know, an awful lot of these, um, a, a high percentage, a high percentage of these, has some kind of conventional explanation. Yeah, it, Connecticut has very, very, very popular and active skies, mostly with air traffic. Um, we have a lot of defense contractors and subcontractors in our state that are all doing various testing and what. Uh, different types of drones and different other aviation assets. So most of what we see is um, man-made, about 95%. Um, of that, 5% is probably listed as unknown. Uh, of the caveat of that, you know, there is some things that we just can't identify because there's not enough information. There's oh, too old. Uh, just, we'll close it as historical. So really the the unidentified, the modern stuff that we look at, the modern sightings, like modern being like the last couple months of this year, is probably like 2% of what we would actually consider UAPs, unknown aerial phenomena. You know, another thing that uh, I believe uh, you do as a, a, at least a regular or semi-regular activity, at least you used to, is just gather to look at the sky, which is something that we don't do. I mean, I, I'm out every night walking my dog, but I'm trying to figure out where the dog's going to poop, and I've got a flashlight, and I've got this, and I've got that, and I've got things on my mind. And, you know, the amount of time that even on a good night when there's no smoke coming down from Canada, or there's no humidity and clouds just blurring the sky, on a clear night, the, amount of, uh, the number of times I'll just stand still and look up are pretty small. But there's a real value just in doing that, right? There is. There absolutely is. And you're right. We, we do do that. And I, I should have mentioned that. I forgot. Um, but yes, we do. In the summer months, in the warmer months, 
um, until it starts to get really cold, like, you know, the winter subarctic temperatures, we, we go out once a month and just look at the sky. And you'd be surprised what you see. You see satellites, you see shooting stars, um, you see unknown craft, maybe, but not always. But at least you get to see the stars. And it's just a nice time to stop and unwind. And when you do it as a group, you know, you get that camaraderie. People talk and tell stories. So it's, it's a real bonding experience. Not only are you looking at UFOs, but you're making friends as well. So, you know, a few years ago we were talking to you and it was kind of in the wake of some of these things that were coming out, particularly about the Navy pilots seeing stuff and sometimes recording it on flight cameras and descriptions of a a sphere inside of a cube that could speed between two jets at this incredible rate of speed. And uh, I mean, just stuff that, you know, is sort of somewhere in the realm of what MUFON has been talking about for a long time. Now, with these Grush revelations, we're, you know, on a different rung of the ladder here. Could you just tell me a little bit about how are you feeling about them? Uh, how are you feeling about this latest wave uh, of disclosures? Well, whistleblowers are nothing new in the field of ufology. I mean, I've been involved with it for almost 20 years now, and there's always been whistleblowers that say they know stuff. I think that what we have now is a much higher credibility level of our whistleblowers. You know, the, this individual, he comes from the military, comes from the intelligence background, with the congressional hearings and Gillibrand coming out and saying, you know, we have protections in place to allow whistleblowers to come forward without being um, worried about prosecution or any kind of reprisal from their respected agency. All that's new. And so it, it's great. It's a it's um, hopefully it'll bring some answers to a lot of questions we all have. Let me ask you one more question. I think I asked it to you last time that you were on. You know, I mean, I'm in my late 60s now, and I've been a reporter since 1976. And I sort of know how people were treated who took UFOs seriously for decades and decades. um, And they weren't treated necessarily with a lot of respect or uh, uh, credence. Um, I don't know. How does this feel to have the wheel turning in the direction that it's turning in now, just as you, a person who for a long time has thought what it is that you think about this whole subject? Yeah, it's great. It's it's vindication, to be honest with you. It's probably the best word. I feel vindicated because, you know, we've been on the proverbial rooftop screaming from from since like the 70s, as you mentioned, that they're out there, they're visiting us, they're They're interacting with us, and people just thought we were the crazy people with tinfoil hats on. And now that the government and the the Pentagon are starting to really look at this Congress, uh, it's 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 a whole new paradigm. You know, we have MUFON shirts that we wear, and people come up and ask us about what's MUFON. And when you say, "Oh, mutual UFO network," in the past, they kind of laugh, or you get a uh, a little, you know, snickle. But now they actually ask questions. You know, if we have our Connecticut MUFON hats on, they come up and ask us questions about that, or they'll tell us their stories that, hey, you know, I saw something. Let me tell you about it. And in the past, it was, oh, that's interesting, and then kind of walk away without avoiding while avoiding eye contact. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's a nice change of pace, and it's nice to be actually taken seriously. And for Congress to start holding hearings and open hearings, and I know they have closed hearings where so they go over a lot more, but the fact that they actually are doing this um, it's it's just nice. It, it really does feel like a vindication of everything we've been working for 
for in this field. All right. Well, Michael Panicello, thanks for being with us today, State Director of the Mutual UFO Network here in Connecticut, the Connecticut chapter. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk to a scientist after this who does believe that we will find probably life in the universe, doesn't think it's coming in on machines that we can find remains of now. Time to say a few thank yous. We're going to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer today and most days. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, and she is the producer of this particular episode. So, you know, yes, we have the work of Leslie Kane. We have what's going on in Congress. Uh, but within the world of science, I think there are an awful lot of scientists who remain yet unconvinced uh, by some of this evidence, which doesn't mean that they don't think that there may be things out there. And here to kind of represent that point of view, Adam Frank is the Helen F. and Fred H. Gowan Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Little Book of Aliens, which will be released in October. Uh, Adam Frank, welcome to our show. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be there. So. I think it would be interesting just to talk a little bit about what one could reasonably infer about the cosmos, given what we actually really do know right now. And you, you wrote a fascinating piece in The Atlantic uh, not too long ago about the fact that not only could we reasonably infer this, but it appears to be absolutely true that nothing to do with extraterrestrial life or anything, but for reasons of physics, the un universe is humming in such a way, I guess if there are people, if there are beings in UAPs, they should have noise-canceling headphones over their, all seven of their ears because the universe is making a, a noise of some kind. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, so this is just about, this was a spectacular result just from pure astrophysics, not related to astrobiology and life in the universe. Uh, what we found essentially was that the all of the black holes in the universe, all of the massive black holes um, that are merging, and they're in the center of every galaxy, you have black holes that are uh, often that are orbiting each other, or at least certain kinds of galaxies. And you know, universe is pretty big. And when these things merge, they create gravitational waves that are literally distortions in the shape of space and time. And what we found was is that space, there's like a background, a din of these um, distortions, of these gravitational waves rippling through the entire universe. It's like when you go to a city and there's just that background din that you hear of you know all the, the horns honking, et cetera. And so um, this took a long time for people to figure out how to discover, but now we have proof, we have conclusive evidence that the universe is full of this, as I call it, uh, gravitational Mongolian throat singing. Right. Uh, no, I love that description. I know exactly what that sounds like, too. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, there's, you know, I mean, I, here on Earth, we have, for a long time, there was this thing, I, I think they still talk about it, called the Taos Hum in Taos, New Mexico. It was kind of this droning noise. Nobody knew where it came from. Here in Connecticut, we have a thing called the Moodist Noises. Nobody's entirely sure what those are. So uh, it turns out space has the same things. But I want to shift over to this the question that we've been dealing with mostly in this episode, and that is the idea of some kind of traveler. Uh, coming here. This is sort of not where you 
would like to see our attention go, right? You feel as though we're really on the cusp of some really interesting new findings because uh, of what the newest of all telescopes in space can do. So tell us about the capacity we now have for searching for signs of life elsewhere. Yeah, so the important thing people need to understand is this question about life in the universe. Are we the only life in the entire universe? is is 2,500 years old, if not older, but we can actually see the Greeks yelling at each other about it, you know, <laughs> uh, more than two millennia ago. And, you know, through that entire time, it's just been people yelling at each other about, like, your opinion, man. Um, whereas now, finally, thanks to incredible advances in telescope technology, we now have the capacity to see alien life, to find evidence for alien life, where you should be looking for it, which is on alien planets, right? And so the way the, the reason this happens or is possible is because um, we now, for the first time, know that the universe is full of planets. Uh, up until 1995, we didn't know whether or not any planets existed around any other stars. That perhaps our our solar system was a freak, and that you know planets were rare. We now know that planets are dime a dozen. Every star in the sky has planets, and we also have figured out how to look at them in the way that we could tell whether or not they had biospheres, meaning, you know, vast collections of life that actually will change the atmosphere of the planet. We can see that from a distance. We can also use, we can also look for techno uh, spheres, techno, you know, the, 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 just like if you look at Earth at night, you can see city lights. We will gonna, we're gonna have the capacity to see city lights from across light year distances. And this is really the way to look for alien life. As I like to say, you know, if you're going to look, if you want to find Nebraskans, you don't go to that some small town in the Himalayas, right? You go to Nebraska because that's where Nebraskans live. The idea that, oh, there's all these, these aliens visiting Earth. You know, Earth, the universe is huge. The galaxy is huge. What are they all doing here, right? So the, the logical place to look for aliens is as they're going about their alien business on their alien homeworlds. Um, and so this is, people need to understand that finally, after two and a half millennia, we have the capacity to find alien life scientifically um, through uh, through our, the technology we've developed. And that is going to be a game changer. That is going to change, you know, if we find it, even if we don't find it, that's also, either way, it's going to change how we understand ourselves in the universe. Right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, including the possibility, apparently, that the Greek philosopher Thales has seen the Big Lebowski. Um, <laughs> but uh, I caught that. Adam. Sure I, caught, I saw what you did there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, once again, once we know about these planets, and I think you wrote in The New York Times, the 10 billion trillion habitable planets that we now believe exist in the universe make extraterrestrial civilizations far more likely. Civilizations is a bigger thing than life, right? You can find the conditions in which life might exist. You might even find some signs of life. Civilizations is sort of a big word, you know, <laughs> in this context. Say a little bit more about that. So, you know, the idea of a civilization, from my point of view, is just the ability to har for a species develops the technology to harvest energy to be able to do work, to be able to increase what its capacities are. Like, right, a horse has one horsepower available to it. You and I have, you know, a hundred or a thousand times human power available to us each day because of the technology. And that technology, you know, you, you requ that requires a civilization in the sense that, you know, you can't do it alone. You have to have, you know, you have to be able to store, uh, to make information, store information, use that information together to be able to build, um, to be able to build things. So it really, you know, 
a civilization is really an energy using uh you know collective in some sense and so that's obviously further down the stream you know just having life itself the discovery of just microbes anywhere else would be a game changer because it would mean that we're not a one-off that life on earth is not just an accident um but finding civilizations has even more profound consequences for who we think we are and where we think we're going. So um, this is getting ahead of the story a little bit, but two of the greatest thinkers I've ever known, Stephen Hawking and Lily Tyson, the senior producer of this show, are of the (laughs) same mind that it's just like, which is in their mindset is just, I mean, okay, maybe you can go look at them out. (laughs) But don't say anything. <laughs> don't don't send Neil Diamond records out into space. Don't do stuff like that uh, because we don't know what these civilizations might be like. I don't. Where do you come down on that question? Uh, I'm actually in favor of that. So this is this idea of METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, where people have taken giant radio telescopes and like beamed a high intensity signal that would really stand out um, to, you know, some distant part of the galaxy, you know, announcing our presence. And I, in general, think that's probably not a good idea. I mean, we just don't know. Um, and also, who gets to speak for Earth? Uh, really, you know, we should uh, collectively decide whether or not we want to be poking <laughs> our heads above the sand to announce our presence. Hey, we're here. We're tasty. So, um, yeah, I think that's it's probably a better idea to sort of hold off. I mean, we just don't know what we don't even know if interstellar travel is really possible. But either way, you know, uh, caution is probably a good idea. Yeah, we haven't even decided who should speak for Nebraska. Uh <laughs> You know, right. to use for Earth as a whole. To yeah, use your analogy. Yeah, I mean, I don't, we're not even ready for that. Yeah, I, I'm sort of out of time here, but I've got like 60 seconds left. Maybe just say that, the, elaborate a little bit on what you just said before. We don't know whether interstellar travel is possible. We're talking about a technology that we almost can't imagine, one that would span the distances that would have to be spanned. Yeah, and this is why I'm so skeptical of all the UFO stuff, right? It's this idea that like, oh, these creatures have the ability to cross the unimaginable distances between the stars and then they get here and then they can't turn their cloaking devices off right they don't want to announce their presence but they you know but they they keep we keep seeing them but we don't really see them so it's like how come they can't turn their headlights off or they keep crashing right and and we get to recover their like you know the, the the technology you need to cross interstellar distances is so profound and is so beyond anything we have that, you know, A, it's not, we don't know if it's possible, and B, anybody who has it is not going to be, you know, partially showing up to us or crashing in the, you know, the Nevada desert. Look, if you don't keep up with the maintenance schedule, we can't be responsible for what happens to your spaceship. <laughs> Adam Frank, the you're... The blinking light comes the, on, There right? you go, that yeah. Go to Valvoline and Alpha Centauri. All right, uh, Adam Frank, your terrific guest. Pencil us in for October when the book, The Little Book of Aliens, comes out. We'd love to have you back. We have to, uh, we say this to aliens too. We'd love to have you back. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. So anyway, we'll, we'll say goodbye for today. Thanks to Lily Tyson again. And let's do more of this. Now you know that that ain't right. My love for her is gonna keep it till she comes back and whispers. My baby's fooling around with some space cat. That chick don't know where she's at. She better come on down here to Earth and prove. 